Test, test, test. Test, test. One, two, three, four, five, six. Test. Actually, put it on your repeat the way you do. Good morning. Hello, Philip. Oh, that's too high. No, it's too high in my face. Okay, that's better. Hello? Good? Okay. Is it registering on... Oh, yeah, it's registering there. Okay. Hello? Yeah.
And why don't you go ahead and greet someone around you? We'll get started in a moment. I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Lord Jesus, this morning that's our our aim. As those who are gathered together here to worship you, May we not set anything before our eyes that is worthless. Jesus, you are of infinite worth. And so we're gathered here to set you before our eyes. And we recognize that there is no way to be made right with our God apart from Jesus Christ. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. This morning, may you incite something in us. God, may our affections be stirred for you. May we be drawn to you this morning. May we leave this place transformed. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen.
Amen. It's a privilege to covenant together as families uh, to raise our our children in the fear and the instruction of the Lord. We get to do that. We didn't know the phrase, uh, it takes a village to raise a kid. And uh, in fact, the local church is designed to do, to do just that, encourage and spur parents on. Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes. We're going to read the first 11 verses. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are a handful uh, in front of you in the pew. Uh, that's a little bit trans- different translation than I'm going to be reading from this morning. If you would like to see word for word what I'm reading, um, there are Bibles on the back table back there. Uh, and we'll, um, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, that, that is intended for you as a gift as, as well. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, this is where we're going to be reading. If you're not quite sure where you're going... Uh, look for Psalms. It's a big, big book, big collection right in the middle. Um, and then right after Psalms is Proverbs, and then right after Proverbs is Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 11, all ones. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north, around and around goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It it has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things, yet to be among those who come after. This this book is out of the ordinary. When we approach uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, oftentimes we feel disconcerted or strange, and lots of times when we're reading our Bible, we feel, we feel that way. And we ask the question, is it okay for someone to say this? Is, is it okay for this self-identified preacher to say this? Should I be okay with it? Should I be okay with the words that are here? Oftentimes when we think about the book of Ecclesiastes, if you read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you think to yourself, hey, this is super depressing stuff. This is really hard. What do we do with this? In the New Testament, we come up against some of these ideas also, some of these concepts that are contained here, but oftentimes we get resolution a little more quickly. Jesus says some things like, in Luke 14, 26, he says, if anyone comes to me 
and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That's tough. Or, Jesus says in Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have come, not come to bring peace, but a sword. Isn't this the, the prince of peace? <laughs> what is he saying? We come across things like this and we wonder, why is this here? Why is the whole book of Ecclesiastes here? Why is it contained in the Bible? This is such a downer. Why does Jesus say things like he says in Luke 14, 26 and in Matthew 10, 34? Why does the Bible have this in it? Why does the Bible have the book of Ecclesiastes in it? Am I allowed to feel what the, what the author here is writing? Am I allowed to feel that? Are Christians even allowed to feel? <laughs> Christians are just supposed to throw off the emotional and say, have a blessed day instead of goodbye. <laughs> or praise the Lord after every report of job promotions or getting over the flu bug. But Ecclesiastes challenges all of it. Ecclesiastes comes hard after us and challenges what we feel. The author cries in, the, in verse 2. This is the thesis for the book. The author cries, vanity of vanities. He says everything is meaningless or everything is vain. And when he says everything, he means everything. The word translated in verse 2 in your ESV, vanity, something like a smoke or, or a vapor. You can't quite pin it down. You can't quite grab onto it. You can't quite lay hold of it. Certainly you've seen The Sound of Music. <laughs> the nuns in The Sound of Music sing this song because they can't quite figure out this nun candidate, Maria, this Maria girl, right? You know what I'm talking about? No, you don't? Okay. She doesn't fit their picture of what a nun should be. And they keep singing questions like, how do you catch a cloud and pin it down? Or how do you keep a wave upon the sand? Something that they don't understand, something that's a vapor, something that's a smoke, something that is a challenge. Maria, in the sound of music, is pictured right out of the gate as an unpredictable, erratic, and uncontrollable person. Ecclesiastes views life like the nuns view Maria in the sound of music. Unpredictable, erratic, uncontrollable. This book is written by Solomon, the son of David. And he wrote the majority of another book right before it, the book of Proverbs. Both of these books, along with the book of Job, fall into wisdom literature in the Old Testament. These books are wisdom literature. And the tone of Proverbs, if you've read Proverbs recently, is very optimistic. Here, Solomon, in the book of Proverbs, writes something like Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. He says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Solomon is saying, if you listen to your dad, 
and his dad-like wisdom, you'll live longer, you'll live in peace, and you'll be more satisfied in general with life. But then we turn the page from Proverbs 31 into the book of Ecclesiastes, and we see something quite different. We see a verse like verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer is a very clear implied nothing. I love what Zach Eswine writes. He writes this. In Proverbs, a good man plus God's love and wisdom equals a good life. In Ecclesiastes, a good man plus God's love still dies like the beast or the fool. Did I just say I loved that? But this is the reality of the book. The reality of Ecclesiastes. And this is where we feel so uneasy that the preacher, as he calls himself in verse 1, as he, he would dwell here, why would he spend so much time here? We say, just be a little more positive, man. Just better vibes. Just send some good vibes out. But that's not what the preacher does. He's not here just to vibe well. And so our text this morning, verses 1 through 11, offers a setup to the rest of this book. Now, we've spent the last 26 weeks-ish in 1 Corinthians. Now, that's a letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. Very different tone, very different style. And so we're switching some pretty major gears here. We're going to have to shift our thinking pretty dramatically. 1 Corinthians was precise and processed, right? Into the wisdom book of an Old Testament, like like Ecclesiastes, this is much more free-flowing, much more poetic. And so being a good Bible reader or being a good listener when it comes to approaching preaching in Ecclesiastes means understanding genre. What type of book are we in? What are we doing when we approach wisdom literature? The way that we approach a letter is very different. We can't approach these two the same. You wouldn't read your vehicle's owner's manual expecting to get Shakespeare. That's somehow, sometimes, how we approach our Bible. We can't do the same here. So we want to be mindful of the shift this morning. I want to give you that because we want to be mindful of the shift a dramatic shift where some of this language seems so harsh, but it's not necessarily as harsh as we think it is. So there's this interesting setup also that needs to be introduced here. Look at verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. There's actually two people speaking in the book of Ecclesiastes. One is just the author. The author introduces us to the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. The author gets a voice only in verse 1 of chapter 1, and then we don't hear from the author again all the way until chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. The rest, everything in between, verse 2 of chapter 1 and verse, or all the way through chapter 12, verse 18, is the preacher, this one introduced in verse 1. And then as we look at this and as we begin to boil down what, what, where we're going, 
Look at verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Now go all the way to the end of the book. If you've got your Bible in front of you, I hope you do, flip all the way to chapter 12, verse 8. These are the bookends for the preacher. Verse 2 in chapter 1. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. All is vanity. And then we recover the voice of the author in verse 9. So, these are the preacher's first words after the author introduces him and the preacher's last words before the author wraps up the book. Now, it's pretty safe to say that Solomon is both the author and the preacher. But using this form, by using this form, he gives himself the ability to jump into a character and offer a perspective that may be relatively uncommon to readers of Solomon. He's giving an alternative perspective to the world, one that is absolutely true, but one that may be uncommon to those who have ingested Solomon before. And since there is a preacher, we can regard this book of Ecclesiastes as a sermon. So we're going to refer to it as a sermon. It's a sermon. There's a preacher. He's preaching a sermon. Vanity of vanities, he begins his sermon. That's his introduction. So we're going to consider chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And these verses help us answer one question this morning. One question for us this morning in the text Why is this sermon preached? Why is this sermon, not the sermon I'm preaching, but why is the sermon, the book of Ecclesiastes, why is it preached? Why is it preached? So we're going to ask the question. First, we're going to build our understanding based on what we see in these 11 verses, and then we're going to answer the question, why? So why is the sermon preached? Again, we have to begin by Thinking about verse 2, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. It's depressing again, but true. The, the preacher is about to prove it to us. It's the question in verse 3, what do you profit? What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? What, what do you gain through all of the work that you do here on earth? What do you get from it? The last line in verse 3 is absolutely vital to our understanding here. We'll unpack this throughout our time this morning. The phrase, under the sun. What does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That phrase, under the sun, is going to appear 29 times throughout this sermon. And that means it's important. So, we have to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean? What does Solomon mean? What does the preacher mean when he says, under the sun? I'm going to give you three ideas here that are contained in the idea or the phrase, under the sun. And every time it comes up, 29 times throughout this, this book, this sermon, I want you to think about these things. So maybe write them down and keep them close in the, in the place in your Bible in Ecclesiastes. First, it just simply shows us where, obviously, 
under the sun. The preacher is speaking from an earthly perspective, the here and now, the place where we creatures reside, the here and now. So, first, under the sun just means where? Where are we? We're under the sun. Secondly, it shows us that we all live here. We all reside under the sun. The wicked, the righteous, that's how we, the Bible frames this idea. Everyone, right now, currently, is under the sun. Think about being a, f- a farmer for a second. Jesus uses this illustration for us. You plant your crops and you need it to rain. You are a nice guy. You think about others. You're a good neighbor. And you even go out of your way to help others when you get the chance. You manage your finances well and you stay organized. You try to live wisely. The farmer who lives next to you, he's a real piece of work. He cheats. He's lazy. He lies. He has no integrity. His kids beat up your kids regularly. His wife is a gossip. He doesn't even start planning until everyone is out of the field. He's a fool. Your crops go in. His crops go in. It's kind of dry. You're hoping it rains. You're watching your neighbor, and he finally gets everything in. And you think, what has he been doing this whole time? And now you both need it to rain. And then it rains. Who does the rain fall on? Both you and your neighbor. Jesus says that God makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The wise, godly people still live under the sun. Subject to creation. Wise, godly people still live here among the fools. They don't ascend to a higher plane of reality. We all live here. So when we see the phrase under the sun, we need to realize that we all live here under the sun. Finally, under the sun, that phrase shows us that things are a mess. We want our houses or apartments to look like the ones in better homes and gardens. But if you live in a structure, you know something is always not quite right with it. Your home is in a state of decay or disrepair at some level. You need to put some time into it. But other things keep coming up. And you sit down on the couch at the end of the day and you look at the baseboards and you see that place where you missed painting last year and you try to conjure up the, the energy to do it. Or you look next to the chair and you see this dust bunny that just spontaneously generated there. When on that chair is a pizza roll stain from an unauthorized feeding by a child. Things are a mess. No matter what. Things are a mess. No matter what someone's Instagram or Twitter feed suggests. 
The, the phrase under the sun shows us where we all are right now and that it's a mess all up in here. Now, now the preacher happens to be that guy. And when I say that guy, I put that in air quotes. You know, you know what I'm saying when I say that guy? That guy refers to the guy in the group who's always bringing up the topics of conversation that no one wants to talk about. Someone may say, I don't want to be that guy to start a conversation so that they can bring up something that's kind of hard to hear for everyone. And everyone around the circle just is rolling their eyes. If someone tells the preacher that he shouldn't talk about a difficult topic, he says, this is what people are going through, so we have to talk about it, right? Or if someone tells or says, these types of things just shouldn't happen, the preacher would respond by saying, maybe, but they do. So what's next? The phrase under the sun introduces uncomfortability. Things are a mess, and we're all living in it, whether we're wise from a godly perspective or fools. So the question is asked, what is gained by all of this work under the sun? The answer is implied in verse 3, nothing. And that launches the preacher into this section, verses 4 through 8, where he's going to prove this statement to us, where he's going to prove verse 3 to us. Why is nothing to be gained? Why is it all vanity? Because of the unbreakable cycles of the earth. Generations come and generations go. People live and die. And the cycle continues. We are blips on the time radar. Just a few trips around the sun and our lives are open or over. They open and they close quickly. Do you know your great great grandparents? Not personally, I'm sure. I don't know mine. I never knew them. I'm not even sure that I know their names. I met a couple of my great-grandparents when I was really young. But I didn't know who they were or what made them tick or what made them go or the achievements they made other than a few cool, fun stories that my grandparents told me. But that's about it. Generations come and go, but the earth remains forever, the preacher says. Generations before us came to this place, and the grass came up, and the leaves came out on the trees, and the birds sang, and the rain fell, and the cycles of the earth carried on, despite who's on it. The preacher says the sun rises and the sun goes down. The preacher says it hastens to the place where it rises. The sun cycles every day. It comes up and it goes down. It sets over the horizon. The cosmic cycles continue. And the wind blows to the south and it goes to the north. And then it hastens back to the place where it started. And the streams of water run to the sea. But the the author, the preacher says... The sea is not full. There's a cycle here. 
over and over and over and over again. The unbreakable cycles of the earth are ever-present. We operate on this stage. We come and we go. We live and we die. The sun comes up and the wind blows and the water still flows. And the preacher sums it up in verse 8. And all things are full of weariness. Bound to the same cycles over and over with no end. In Greek mythology, if you know Greek mythology, there's a character by the name of Sisyphus. He was a king who lived a life of deceit and selfishness. And in the afterlife, he was bound to roll a rock up a hill. And about when he got it to the top of the hill, it would roll down over and over and over again into eternity. You know those teeth-gritting type tasks that you have to engage in when you're just about done and you feel like you've got it and then it all comes undone. Sometimes tasks that seem futile, like this one, are Sisyphean tasks. The preacher's outlook on the cycles of the earth are nearly Sisyphean. Creation is exhausted. Creation is dead tired. All things are full of weariness. The preacher says a man cannot utter it. You can't even speak it. If you were as weary as creation was, as bone tired from the Sisyphean labor, you would fall asleep at night before you got your shoes off or before you brushed your teeth. Consider the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says that creation was subjected to futility. Subjected to futility in that it has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. I've sat by my wife as she gives birth their first 27 hours. I've been by her side as she gave birth to two babies at one time. Well, not one time, but quick succession. I've heard the groans of childbirth. And, and we, we need to get our heads here because Genesis chapter 3. Sin enters the world in Genesis chapter 3 through Adam and Eve as they disobeyed God and they ate the fruit. The whole earth has been groaning with in childbirth since then. Through thousands of years, as the sun has risen and set hundreds of thousands of times, 27 hours of watching my wife in childbirth nearly broke me, and I wasn't even doing it. I was just an observer. All I could do was offer a hand to squeeze. And all of creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennium after millennium. Rebecca sent me this article this week about the limits of human endurance from BBC. The title of the article was Ultimate Limit of Human Endurance Found. Let me read you this excerpt. The ultimate limit of human endurance has been worked out by scientists analyzing a 3,000-mile run, the Tour de France, and other elite events. They showed the cap was 2.5 times the body's resting metabolic rate, or 4,000 calories a day for an average person. Anything higher than that was not sustainable in the long term, you think? The research by Duke University also showed pregnant women were endurance specialists 
living at nearly the limit of what the human body can cope with. Later in the article, it says this. During pregnancy, women's energy use peaks at 2.2 times their resting metabolic rate, the study showed. 2.2, the max is 2.5 for an extended period of time. The preacher is no fool. This is the wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus himself. The Apostle Paul is no fool. They're picking these metaphors intentionally. The earth is full of weariness because the cycle after cycle, the groaning upon groaning, the endless childbirth that creation is enduring, it doesn't take a team of experts from the BBC to realize that pregnancy and delivery are wearying processes. The preacher says that. We can't even speak about it. We can't even see enough to be satisfied. The preacher says all things are full of weariness. These cycles go on and on and nothing is to be gained. They just keep coming on and on and on. The pain continues on and on and on and nothing is gained. We can't even speak about it. We can't even see enough to be satisfied. We cannot even fill our ears with hearing because nature is bound to these cycles and no gain comes through them. We cannot gain anything through observing them. And then... When we consider the last three verses of our text, in verses 9 through 11, the preacher restates what he writes in verse 3. There is no gain for all of our toil. There is nothing new under the sun. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. The cycles we observe in creation are the cycles that will continue into the future, and all things are full of weariness. The preacher hears the objection that you're no doubt making in verse 10. See, this is new. The preacher shuts it down. Now, you may be tempted to think that this is wrong. There are new things. January 9th, 2007, Steve Jobs got in front of a group of people in an auditorium and introduced the original iPhone. That was new, right? Have you ever seen smartphones in a history of our existence? This technology that has never been seen in the history of the world, the ability now to call anyone from around the globe, get real-time updates on literally anything in your pocket right now. The preacher says, it has been already done in the ages before us. Look at the end of verse 10. It has been already in the ages before us. Not iPhones, but We often speculate how people who would have lived 200 years ago would respond if they hopped in a time machine and came to our time. Their minds would be blown. They would be, our world is so advanced. Wow, look at you guys. This is amazing. And I think the preacher, if he hopped in a time machine and came to 2019, would just shrug. And he'd say what he says in verse 10. Why? The human heart is the exact same. The drive to gain something under the sun remains the same. The preacher would look at our world and say, what has been gained by this? What is, what is, what's been gained? Sure, it's cool, but iPhones are meaningless. Generations come and go. You don't see anyone carrying around an original iPhone from 2007 anyways, operating on the 3G network. That was 12 years ago. All we've done is create another meaningless pursuit in a way to distract us from the wearisome cycles of the earth. There will be no remembrance of the original iPhone, the preacher says. 
Some history buff will tell our grandkids about it in 100 years, and they'll say, oh, cool, and then they'll hop on their hoverboards and ride around their moon colony. Again, Zach Eswine says, if we stop and think about it, we have never heard of almost everyone who has ever lived. Most of those who we have heard of, we do not know personally. Even those few who go down in history, whom some of us, some of us thoroughly study in pursuit of advanced degrees, remain incompletely remembered. So this is the data. This is building our understanding of what the, the preacher says in verse 2. Vanity of vanities, he says, all is vanity. Why is this sermon preached? Our conclusion this morning, we ask, or we want to answer that question. Back to the question, why is the sermon preached? And this is why we're here in this book, in this sermon that the preacher preaches to us, the book of Ecclesiastes. I think first, the sermon is preached to show us that we should be uncomfortable under the sun. We should be uncomfortable under the sun. What is to be gained by all the work we do here? Nothing. That is so uncomfortable. You work hard. Under the sun, you can't gain anything. Your achievements are meaningless. Your education is meaningless. Your marriage is meaningless. Your parenting is meaningless. Your view of self is meaningless. Your house is meaningless. Your car is meaningless. Your vacationing is meaningless. Your hobbies are meaningless. You can choose to ignore it, but it doesn't make it any less true. You should be squirming, and that's the point. The point is that this should make us feel uncomfortable. The sun will rise and set, and the earth will go around the sun 80-ish times on average, and your expiration will come, you will die. You should feel the tension. You should feel the vanity of it. You should feel that everything out of the sun is a vapor, and it cannot be grabbed onto. It cannot be manipulated or controlled or harnessed. And much later in the book, the preacher will say this. Chapter 9, verse 11, he said, I, Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to the intelligent, nor, the favor, nor favor to those who, with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. Of course the race goes to the fastest. Of course the battle goes to the strong. Of course the resourceful person eats well. Of course the one who's the smartest makes money. Of course the one who knows things is liked by many. The preacher says it doesn't work like that. They are subject to the cycles of creation. You woke up this morning with expectations of how the day would go. Your expectations may or may not become a reality today. No matter how reasonable they are. Gonna go home, eat some lunch, take a nap. You've got to feel the weight of it. You need to be debilitated by it. That's what the preacher wants. He wants you to ask, so if this is all meaningless, if all of this is vanity, if all of this is futile, if all of this is like smoke or vapor, what is it all about? Here it is. 
the preacher wants to carry us into reflecting on what is vain in order that we may discover what isn't. The preacher wants to carry us into reflecting on what is vain in order that we may discover what isn't. Well, it seems like from verse, the first 11 verses that everything is vain. But that's where the under the sun is so important. Friends, not everything is under the sun. We live like that. We live like everything is contained here and now, boom. You may try to find gain or meeting or satisfaction with that which is, quote, under the sun, unquote, but you will come up empty. It's not that the things under the sun don't matter. It's just not the way that can offer us gain or true meaning in life. Have you ever tried to cook a steak on a patio chair? It doesn't work. That's what it's like to try and gain or find satisfaction in anything under the sun. The patio chair has meaning. It's a great place to sit. It's a terrible place to cook a steak. Move it five to ten feet to the grill and you'll find satisfaction. Move your desires away from that which is under the sun and you will find satisfaction. We try to find meaning and gain and satisfaction in things under the sun. We should quickly find the vanity of those pursuits. That's what the preacher does. Material relationships, finances, hobbies, vacations. These all have their place and matter in some sense, but must be lived with the focus that nothing can be gained by them or true satisfaction cannot be found in them. We must look somewhere beyond under the sun to find these things. We must look to God himself. Apart from him, all is vanity. The preacher was not aware of the event that was new. What is new? There is nothing new under the sun, he says. The preacher was not aware of an event that was new. Jesus, the God-man, would enter the world. This, now this is new. This is new. Jesus would say in John chapter 8, verse 23, you are from below. I am from above. You are from under the sun. I am not. He says, you are of this world. I am not of this world. There is nothing new under the sun, but there is one who did not come from under the sun and who has promised to make all things new. Revelation 21. And Jesus offers us the way to not be bound to the vanity under the sun. He says in John 3, 3, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The, when Jesus says born again, it could be easily translated born from above. If we are in Christ, we have been made new. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The preacher says that there is nothing to gain from our toil under the sun, but in light of Christ in the resurrection, Paul says, we considered it just two weeks ago, he says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Divorce this simple phrase, in the Lord, from your labor, and it is vanity. Add it in, and it has complete, utter meaning. Friends, do you want your life to have meaning? Do you want to work and have it mean something? Do you want there to be gain for your toil? Consider two simple lines from a poem that C.T. Studd wrote. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And I think I would add, only what's done for Christ and in Christ and through Christ will last. The cycles of this earth come and go over and over and over and over and over again in weariness. The earth limps on, but in Christ, you are not of this world. You are not from this place called under the sun. You are born from above. And so you are not subject to the meaningless, the vanity of this world. Your life, your work can have meaning. There can be gain for your toil because of Jesus Christ. We should feel uncomfortable here under the sun. If you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, you need to know Jesus Christ. He needs to make you new. You need to trust Him for the forgiveness of your sins so that your life can have meaning. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. We should feel uncomfortable here because our life in Christ is fixed somewhere else by reflecting on that which is vain and meaningless. We find that which is not. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can gather as your people to know you. God, we thank you that you have made a way in Christ Jesus for our lives to have meaning. God, may we look around and be convinced of the vanity of the things that this world offers to us, the meaninglessness the worthlessness. May we not seek satisfaction in things other than in you. Everything under the sun is meaningless. God, everything in you has meaning. God, change our hearts. Cause our affections to be stirred for you. May we love you more than anything else. God, may we find satisfaction in you, in you alone. It's in Jesus' name and we pray. Amen.
Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you've clearly shown us in your word and that all we have is you. And may we not go from this place as those who, who don't have that realization, but as those who, whose entire life is dedicated to knowing you more and making you known in a world full of darkness. God, we thank you for the meaning that you give to us and to our lives. Thank you that we can look and see something new, one sent from above on our behalf to live a life that we couldn't, to die a death that we deserve in order that we might be made right with our Creator. God, may we observe again the things around us and not seek satisfaction in them, but recognize that there is one who is not under the sun, seated at the hand of the Father, one that can give us satisfaction. God, may we see his infinite worth this morning. God, and may we dwell upon it. God, may we go from here rejoicing as those who have been made new because of the shed blood of Jesus. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray this morning. Amen. We thank you for worshiping with us this morning. Just a couple of things before you head out. I want to make mention that this afternoon at 3 p.m., we have a membership class scheduled uh, up in the blue room at 3 p.m. Um, if you do plan to go and have yet to sign up either online or in the back sheet, would you please sign up so that I can have enough copies of things made and, and we can have enough chairs set up and all of that. If you do plan to attend, go ahead and put your name on the sheet back there so that I can, so that I can get everything squared away and ready to go for that at 3 p.m. membership class in, in the blue room. Um, uh, the couple other things that I want to mention, uh, tomorrow night, women's Bible study meeting in the Blue Room also at 7 p.m. They're studying the book of Proverbs. That's a nice little, maybe a little optimism after this morning. But um, up there, Blue Room, tomorrow night at 7 p.m. Uh, the other thing that I want to mention this morning is that this Wednesday at Austin and Kelly Bowers' home, we're going to have prayer at 8 p.m. I want to invite you to join us. This is everyone, anyone is welcome to join us. Uh, if you're looking for more details, if you're looking for the address, you can find that in the weekly email. Um, if you need to be signed up for the weekly email, come talk to me. I'd love to get you on that list as well. Obviously, community groups are meeting uh, multiple times per week. Uh, come talk to me if you'd like to find one. Community group leaders, put your hands in the air. One, two, three. There's one back here. Um, good. Yeah, come talk to us, and we'd love to get you connected if you have yet to connect in a community group. We don't take an offering during the course of our corporate worship gathering, but there is a basket in the back to drop tithes and offerings. One final thing, uh, you see a rose on the organ this morning. Uh, Rowan May was born to Donovan and Jenna Gibson on June 20th, last Thursday. Uh, there will be a Take Them a Meal sign-up available in the weekly, weekly update, and if you have a chance to reach out to them and congratulate them on the birth of Rowan May uh, this, this week, do so. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Go in grace this week.